Welcome to another episode of The Peace Production, the podcast from the Organization for World Peace, where we examine issues currently threatening human security. In today's podcast, we will take a close look into the ever-growing refugee crisis that has close to 80 million people internally and internationally displaced throughout the planet. We will analyze the current situation in the Mediterranean Sea, where more than 20,200 people have drowned since 2014, according to some estimates. For this purpose, we will be interviewing Matea Vaihe, Sea-Watch's cultural mediator on board and land spokesperson. Hi, Matea, and welcome to the OWP podcast. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Our pleasure. So, Matea, you're a cultural mediator for Sea-Watch Rescue Missions. Could you please explain to our audience what this role entails? Sure. So a culture mediator is basically only one crew member of, uh, of a big crew, of course. Um, usually we sail out with a crew of 22 people where the cultural mediator is one person. It depends a bit on the ship, how many crew members we have. But the cultural mediator is the person who is basically the first contact person between the boat in distress and the own crew. So, for example, if we have a distress call, that means that we have knowledge about a boat in distress at a specific location. We basically put down our two fast first approach boats, let's call them like that, they're called uh, rib boats, and then we approach the, the distress case and the cultural mediator is basically sitting in front and um, able to speak in French, Arabic, English, and whatever he or she can speak other than that, having the first contact, trying to figure out how many people there are, and um, what's their situation, if there's anybody injured, um, if there's other boats that left that might still be somewhere in distress, how the situation in general is, etc. So in the rescue moment, the cultural mediator basically does all the communication. And once everybody's on the vessel itself, on the big vessel, once we transfer the people on, on board of the Sea Watch, then the cultural mediator is kind of in a limbo between being a translator, as he or she speaks these languages, and also being a sort of protection officer for the people on board. So assessing vulnerabilities, uh, trying to get the best protection to the people um, possible, and then referring them to organizations on land. Wow, so being the first contact that they have after this long and terrible journey, I imagine uh, you have witnessed some, some extraordinary stories and, and, and have been able to you know, kind of deal with, with a lot of distress and pain from the people that had just got out of the boat. Yeah, I mean, it's basically in that moment when you approach that boat, it's a bit like it, it, it doesn't like there's not really any room for any anything else but practicality and, and professionality as you really have to be quick. And, and I mean, in most of the times, these boats, it's really a matter of time, right? So at the end, you sometimes you arrive at a scene where people are already in the water and you cannot even do this thing that you've practiced for, for weeks you cannot ask like how many people are you because you already have 20 people in the water and then basically everything you know changes and you have to adapt really really quickly to the situation and i guess that's that's mostly the hard part that you prepare yourself to you know ask your questions to be calm to keep people calm to uh, be professional to you know be relaxed doing that etc but once you arrive everything can change and basically everything you have had in your mind can be completely different. I imagine. I mean, I, as I said, you probably have witnessed some some extraordinary uh, tales and stories from these people that you help at, at sea. Is there any story that, that comes to mind in terms of, you know, the, the struggle? I mean, I imagine that they all are amazing in themselves, but could you maybe tell us one of them that kind of impacted you? I think like the whole 
situation like for me it's always a bit hard to find a specific story because at the end i tend to or at least every person who is there they have their different stories and they have their own story and they're all strong and you don't need to be heard but one thing that always really really touches me is that fact that you know on 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 board of a rescue vessel you have it's very visible how um how there is a big difference between white and black people for example because at the end what happens is that all these people they get sent on this these small uh, rubber boats and they get taken away their um their bags their luggage uh, their belongings everything they had their phones uh, if they cannot hide them and also their shoes so at the end we um when they arrive and when they come on board of the of the rescue vessels for example nobody is wearing shoes and for me that's really something that really impacted me by looking down on my own feet wearing security shoes because or safety shoes as they're called because we have to you know be of course due to our flag state regulations etc we have to wear specific safety uh, equipment so you look down on your feet on your i mean white feet and they're wearing you know security or safety shoes and everybody else around you is not is, is barefoot and has you know scars and wounds and cold feet and for me that was really the moment where i thought you know it it's not only it doesn't only come back to who gets asylum and who doesn't it's like really coming back to who is wearing shoes and who is not and how privileged people can be to wear shoes and how this system that we're living in is actually you know creating the situation where there's people with a certain skin color not wearing shoes and people with a different color wearing shoes and for me that was really striking yeah that sounds that sounds definitely striking could you tell us a little bit about what appealed to you about working at sea watch in the beginning i think sea watch is quite an extraordinary organization also in terms to like civil search and rescue operations because at the end i mean there is quite a lot of different uh, civil search and rescue organizations currently also active and in the past also active but sea watch is special in that case as it's probably the most progressive and the most in that sense radical because what we are very clear on what we are demanding so we are very clear that we say freedom of movement for all um open the borders take everybody in um um you know you have the right to come to go to stay whatever you want and i think this is really differing from 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 the different organizations because we as a group as an individual as everybody in this organization stand for the same kind of for the same demands and when it comes to you know political negotiation etc um we are actually able to bring in these demands that are way too radical for you know a conservative european government or even national governments that we have currently but they have to sit down on a table with us and they have to sit down with somebody who says you know what freedom of movement for all and i mean we know that you're not going to do it but we're going to you know poke you in the back as much as we can until yeah until you get so annoyed that uh, there is some opening of the borders at the end that that must be quite a quite a feeling to be able to talk to uh european leaders and see their reactions and kind of you know poke them as you say and and make them kind of think about you know their own their own ideals and whether they're coherent and and absolutely yeah and i mean i don't think they would they they are liking to speak to us either right i mean they'd rather not <laughs> yeah, yeah because they know exactly what what stands behind it and for them it's obviously nothing they could 
ever in, in their policies or ever or anything they could implement. So there's a sense, I mean, for what you're saying, there's a great sense of satisfaction from actually having clear ideals and clear goals and actually struggling and fighting to be able to achieve them and putting, you know, your thoughts into action. Yeah. I mean, at the end, um, I think we all agree on the same thing. And that's something that makes it so special. And I think that when you look into different organizations, I think there's, it doesn't have this clear political line and it doesn't have this clear line that, you know, everybody can follow and everybody can feel part of. And for Sea-Watch, I think we have a lot to learn. I think we have a lot to improve. Um, but we all agree on that kind of fundament. And I think that's something that we, um, yeah, I think we can also be proud of. But then, of course, there is much more to, to, to get better at. I mean, we, we have to be this anti-racist movement um, that we are struggling to be because we are white and we are privileged. We are Europeans. Um, and that's something that we really still need to learn and need to develop at the end. It's an ongoing process. Uh, it is quite difficult to access reliable data on the total number of deaths in the Mediterranean. Do you think there's a specific reason for this? Are maybe authorities trying to bury data or conceal it? I don't think authorities care about uh, numbers of deaths. Um, I th the problem is we're also what we're saying. I mean, we have... Um, different ways to look at data, right? So at the end, we have ships. They can't really do much. Um, we have reconnaissance airplanes, uh, two of them that basically fly and document human rights violations and also in case of, of a boat in distress, try to coordinate these rescue activities. They do uh, have numbers and then also the alarm phone is collecting numbers, etc. And then the IOM is collecting numbers, the UNHCR is collecting numbers, so everybody is somehow collecting numbers. Um, but at the end, we do, I mean, we have so many missing people that are mostly, especially um, being reported to the alarm phone, that it's impossible to actually find a number or even say, say a number like in confidence mm -hmm. that we could stand behind and say, yo, this is the number that we are pretty sure. Because the dark, like, I don't know if you say that in English as well, but in German we say like the dark number is, uh, um, is um, much, much, much higher. Yeah, because it's almost impossible to account for the number of people that just, you know, to control the number of people that are trying to access Europe from all the different yeah. points, right? Absolutely. And I mean, we're looking at one part of the route. I mean, we're looking at the, uh, at the part of Libya to Italy, right? But we're not looking at the part of Morocco, Spain, uh, Turkey, Greece, etc. So... If you look at the whole central Mediterranean, not even the central, sorry, the whole Mediterranean Sea, then, I mean, you don't have only these three routes. There's plenty. And even in the Atlantic, people trying to access the Canary Islands, for example. From yeah, Canada, yeah. There's so many routes, right? And that is, I mean, that is uh, um, getting more and more intense, that situation there. And um, I think it's, it, it, if we would have numbers of uh, deaths, I think we would not sit here and not do anything. Um, I think, or at least I hope that these, if, if we really would have real numbers, that they would at least touch some of the politicians in some way and, um, yeah, make them stop their races. And yeah, but the comfortable yeah, thing is to look the other way. I mean, yeah. like to try to pretend that this, this problem is not happening, which is yeah. what I feel that many European politicians are doing, right? A hundred percent. Um, Talk about the European Union, and it has just published the draft of its new migration agreement. Uh, what does Sea-Watch think about it? I mean, we were um, expecting something like this, but the pact itself is an absolute disaster. It's not a disaster necessarily maybe for member states, 
but it's a disaster for people on the move. It's a disaster for people looking for protection. And I think it's actually also quite a joke, right? Because at the end, they, they, in their press release, they called it a new start. And they said, this is going to be the new start in migration politi- policies and um, in migration management. And we're going to you know, be in solidarity with our member states, etc. But at the end, it's really, really much the same story. Um, what is happening is that it is, again, about the isolation of Europe. It is, again, about making sure that people stay out of the European soil as, as many as possible, making sure that when people reach, that they can be removed as quickly as possible. And it is really a fundamental um, piece of paper that implements a division, yet again, between continents, a division between skin colors, a division between people who are, you know, who are we deciding that they deserve protection and people who are we deciding they do not deserve protection. And um, yeah, I think this pact is, is again, um, showing how far we've come in the sense of repression against uh, migrants, against refugees, against asylum seekers, and how we, um, how we are not even bothered to use words and the language and the rhetoric of humanity to implement something that is racist and uh, repressive. Not only that, it also tries to appease uh, some European countries that are ruled by extreme right governments, right, that are kind of calling the shots in terms of policy and and, and migration uh, law. Yeah, Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it talks about this. I mean, for me, I get really angry when European member states and also the European, I mean, when they start talking about solidarity here, this is not about solidarity at all. This is about, as you just said, you know, giving one finger to the right-winged uh, uh, governments that we have, giving one small finger to, 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 to Austria, to Hungary, to all these countries, and, you know, and then slowly, slowly approaching them uh, to keep up this European idea. But the European idea is that the European idea was something that was based on real solidarity, that was based on um uh, on you know rights on on rights on human rights on you know people being able to seek protection at a specific uh place freedom of of movement uh and that thing is dead the idea is completely dead and now we're starting to move towards you know really 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 problematic uh right-wing governments and uh to, to uphold an idea that has that is dying with them so yeah this is what we've come to terrible agreement in a document published by Sea-Watch in July this year, it urged Germany, who will hold the EU Council presidency until the end of 2020, to address three demands. Could you explain them and comment whether the new agreement, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that it doesn't fulfill them, no, but in, in what yeah. way it does not? So basically, we've, we've said that the, the presidency, the German presidency has a bit of a responsibility in that kind of sense. Um, and we've had three demands where the first one would be to actually, um, you know, make applicable law count again or make make general uh, law at sea uh, count again. And um, because we have witnessed a lot of different human rights violations, uh, breaking of law of the international law of the law of the seas, etc. In the central Mediterranean Sea, especially by actors like Italy, like Malta, um, who need to be, uh, yeah, hold accountable for for their things that they're doing in the central mediterranean sea especially these two countries need to be reminded of their duty to 
um, for example, respond to distress calls, which they currently don't do. They need to be reminded of their duty to engage in rescue activities, which they are not doing. And they need to be reminded of a lot of different things that currently um, are yeah, just simply... Or just not leading to oblivion, no? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, secondly, um, we are demanding a solidarity solution for these member states because, of course, we say that we do not want to leave them by themselves. Like, of course, we say that, that the Dublin system is not working at all. We've said that for a long time. We have demanded a, a reform of the Dublin system for a long time now. It has been on the table. It's been kicked off the table again. This is a game that continues all the way. So we say that we need, of course, a, a solution that is a, a solidarity solution, which is funny because now in the pack, they call it a solidarity solution. Um, but this is not the solution we're talking about. An oxymoron, uh, no? Exactly. It's a solidarity solution, but in reality, it's just a solidarity with the ultra-right solution. Absolutely, yeah. So this is not the solution we're talking about. We're talking about a solidarity, of course, with, with the coastal states, with uh, people on the move, and not with uh, yeah, Hungary or Austria. Um, and the third demand that we have is that basically Germany would be able to call the situation in the Mediterranean Sea a crisis, which would be then part of the um, crisis response mechanism, so they could actually implement a, a European rescue operation in the central Mediterranean Sea. So for us, what we always demand for is a rescue operation that is not led by, by you know, NGOs like countries. us. Yeah. Exactly, but by different countries. And the German presidency could be used to actually call it out as a crisis, and then they have the right to um, act on it. And that action on could be to implement European rescue uh, operation. And this is our demand at the end during all times, because this is how we started off um, being operative in the central Mediterranean. And this is how we want to end it as well. We don't want to be there anymore. I understand. Has the German government shown any interest? No, there's nothing uh, changing. And now I think we're halfway through um, and there is nothing. Nothing in regards to search and rescue has improved. Nothing. Um, I mean, we are currently sailing under a German flag and we have been cooperating with the German government on that. And it is not going bad. I'm not saying that uh, we don't get support through the, the German government. But then on the other hand, I mean, it really depends, right? I don't know how far you are aware of the, the Ministry of Transport and this new uh, regulation by Scheuer, which is the Minister of uh, Transport in Germany. Yeah, because we have these different, um, you know, uh, things in 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 Italy and Malta and blah blah blah, and there's these different laws, and there's there was a Salvini decree, and there was this and there was that. But Germany is doing the same thing. I mean, there is now a uh, a new law that says that boats under a specific length, they have to have specific security um, guidelines. So they need, you know, completely re. They need to be completely rebuilt, actually, at the end. Well, in a way, it's, it's, a, it's a strategy from the government to prevent you from operating at sea. Exactly. And at the end, they wrote it down as basically a you know, ship security thing. And then they leaked all the emails where they talked about it. And in the email, it said, this is completely, um, the reason for it is to prevent civil search and rescue operations. And I mean, we, we have this. Um, there's been articles, right? Like, there's been press about it. There's been statements about it. There's been all these things about it. But there you go. It's gone. Like, they can do whatever they want to do. This law stays. There is 
quite an outcry for maybe a week or two where they say, oh my God, Germany is doing the same thing. Germany is suddenly repressing these organizations and then at the end presenting a, a, you know, a, a new uh, paper that doesn't say civil search and rescue even in one sentence. Um, but there you go. It's, it's, you know, it's the same tools governments yeah, are using. They always find their ways around to law to actually prevent you and, and put obstacles for your, for your rescue. And even, even Germany, right, where you think like, oh, we are such a liberal state and they have, you know, they would never, I mean, well, maybe that's a lie. They would still also uh, call us out and say they would not support. But at least um, the government itself has not gone that far. We are no. about it, no? One of the yeah, most no. controversial resolutions in this new migratory pact is the fast asylum procedures at the border. What do you think about them? And what, are they an improvement of the hotspot strategies that they, were, that they were using before? Yeah, I mean, um, the problem is with these fast screenings or pre-screenings is that they basically take all the rights of refugees or asylum seekers or migrants away and um, basically throw everything they, they've built up in this idea of actually asylum, which is a questionable idea anyway, but that everything they have put in that idea, they're throwing that overboard. Because how are you going to assess within a couple of days who is able to, um, like who is allowed to seek protection and who is not? And the, the biggest problem that I see with it, of course, I mean, assessing who is, you know, allowed to stay or not is something that is so inhumane anyway. But then um, what does it mean for, for the people itself that, that are having these pre-screenings? Yeah, yeah. Um, at the end, they come to a place. So let's say they, they, get, uh, they get to Pozzalo in Italy and because they have been rescued by a, whatever, by an NGO. They get there and they go into this pre-screening process, which means they are not, to la la not allowed to leave at all. And they say, well, we are not really sure about the situation, where they're going to stay. But at the end, we're talking here about like short-term prison at the end. If you don't let them leave because they are in this pre-screening process and then at the end in this deportation process because as they already also say in their pact that a little percentage is going to be allowed to stay anyway then they are coming to europe and they're going to go directly into a prison-like situation and if this is the europe that they want in that pact then thank you but i am not wanting it i'm not part of it and it also gives them an excuse to break their own rules right because supposedly we have a refugee convention that says the people that are being persecuted or escape from conflicts and wars you know have a right to actually seek asylum but by passing this fast expedience they're even you know in a way impeding their own state's ability to distinguish who's a refugee from Absolutely. who is a migrant, right? So that's that's a way to actually short jump, you know, shortcut their, their responsibilities too. Absolutely, and I think it's going to come back to assessing where they're coming from. I mean, at the end, it's going to become it's going to go back to this discussion of safe countries and unsafe countries, and then um, you'll have countries like Iraq or Afghanistan where you have to deeper assess. You know, is it is is a person Shia or Sunni in in Iraq, and therefore maybe you know could be, um, yeah, okay, could be in in a difficult situation, etc. But come on, like, how far is this going? I mean, it's dangerous because it also allows countries to kind of, you know, pursue political interests, allow people, whether based on ideological or religious kind of alliances with, with the countries that they come from, right? Yeah, and then at the end, I mean, if we play this game further, um, if we look at, for example, 80s, 90s in Libya and Gaddafi under the rule, basically he played this game. He completely was the, the king of, of playing these games with, 
you know, using uh, migration and, and refugees or whatever, even migrant workers as a political weapon. And at the end, if we look at that and if we remind ourselves that he would be deporting people, he would take what you, specific nationalities and he would use it to, uh, to, to negotiate with different countries about their nationals. And if we're having this situation where we, you know, have very strict nationals that get asylum, very strict na nationalities that don't get asylum, then at the end, we are opening the stage, we're opening the theater to invite everybody to watch the play about negotiation of lives. And that is something that disgusts me. Now that you mentioned Libya, uh, during this time, part of the EU's response to the refugee and migratory crisis has been to finance the Libyan Coast Guard. Why is this a horrible mistake? I think there is more than just the Libyan Coast Guard, um, but we can come to that in a sec. Um, I mean, there is different tools the European Union is using to make sure that the virtual borders in Libya are being you know, held up and also to make sure that the responsibility is uh, pushed away as, as good as possible. So the so-called Libyan Coast Guard is um, in one a problem because um, as you know, the situation in Libya is quite difficult. We're not necessarily sure which uh, militia is ruling which part of the country, which, you know, is it Haftar, is it Saraj? I mean, the situation itself is very, 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 very difficult at the moment. So to say that there is a, a governmental yeah. I mean, even saying it, it sounds funny. You know, governmental coast guard from a government that does not exist. I mean, look at them. If you look at the map. It's, a, uh, the, it's kind of a failed state. There's no real it, structures of the state, right? That's why anybody could take advantage of that lack of authority to... Yeah, and if, if you also look at the, the area that currently Saraj is ruling, it's tiny. And he basically, I mean, you know, so what is the government? How, how can we talk about a governmental actor in that sense? How can we talk about a state actor in that sense? So that's something that um, for me is, is, is just, it's just a weird thing. And then also, if you look at it, that um, then we have the problems that basically the Libyan Coast Guard is not functioning, the so-called Libyan Coast Guard. We have, um, we cannot reach them. We don't have the numbers. We have eight, nine numbers. They are not answering the phone. If they answer the phone, they don't speak English. And in the, uh, in the IMO regulations, it is said that every RCC, so every rescue coordination center, needs to have the ability to speak English. Because yes, of course, this is the language. You communicate with somebody in a, in a given language. Oh, you can, yeah. How are you going to communicate with whatever a, a sailboat that is, is you know, uh, drowning in the central Mediterranean if you cannot, if you only speak Arabic? I mean, um, or, or German, it doesn't matter which language, it doesn't have to be Arabic. Um, also, you have to have a, you have to be found on a specific location. And if you look at the location of the RCC in in, in Tripoli, then it doesn't exist. <laughs> and you know, these are all different things. How can you have a coast guard that needs to be reachable twenty four seven that then is not reachable during the whole day? This is something that is for me very absurd. And then also, if we come back to the first point that I said, but well, we're not sure who is um, you know who is active. addressed, right? Yeah, who's, uh, who's active there. I mean, there was this one situation, there is a, um, a Libyan who's kind of known under the name of Albija, which is quite a, lo a long uh, time ago. And he has been part of a huge smuggler network that is exploiting humans for their uh, needs. And at some point there was a meeting in Italy because they are um, also uh, not only funding the Libyan Coast Guard, but they're also training the so-called Libyan Coast Guard. So at the end, who was sitting on that table and who was sit, you know, in that photos? It was Albija, one of the traffickers in that area. 
And I don't know if Italy is aware of that or not. It doesn't really matter, but that just says that you cannot support a criminal militia like that. And then, you know, it, it means that there's us. no real plan. And it, and it also means that these countries that the European governments are using, you know, Libya's failed state condition to implement their barriers for refugees, right? In a way. Yeah. And then also, if you look at their vessels, right, because at the end, the Coast Guard needs to have specific uh, vessels. Sometimes they come with a small motorboat and they say they're going to take 100 people on board. Hell no. I mean, they can't even take four. And that's the problem with, uh, with the so-called Libyan Coast Guard. Also, I mean, there's different ways uh, Europe is, you know, shifting responsibilities away from them. There's the, um, the, emergency, the, trans the emergency evacuation mechanism, the ETM, Emergency Transit Evacuation Mechanism. I think yeah. uh, it's always a weird uh, yeah. way to... Acronym, uh, yeah. Yeah. So at the end, Europe is shifting uh, through, you know, giving money into saying like, um, you know, we give the IOM and the, the, the UNHCR money to fund this ETM and they're going to then evacuate people, but they're not going to evacuate them to Europe. No, 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 no. They're going to evacuate them to Rwanda or to Niger. And there we have the situation, which is just for me insane. I mean, if we look at Niger and the situation of migratory flow, flows in that country, how can a country like that bear a complete evacuation mechanism? When How many people are, are coming from that area too, because the Sahel region is also it's basically reform. It's reformment. It's yeah. nothing. It's not an evacuation. It's reformment. And then saying they can access relocation programs on the ground. That is, I'm sorry, but that is just a joke. I mean, if you look at the country of Niger, if if you look at the relocation centers and the transit centers, they are crowded. Uh, they are not being processed because at the end, the the European and also the North American states, they they have a catalog of who they want to have relocated and who they don't. And that is insane. Basically, they want the doctor who has spent, you know, years in the hospital, who doesn't have too many children, who only has one wife and who comes out of a non-religious family, if they may, or Christian, hmm. you know, I mean, come on. Yeah. It's, it's just uh, inhumane the way they deal with the, with the problem. So, Matea, do you think that migrants and refugees are actually taking advantage in a way of the fact that there's no uh, real state, you know, structure in Libya? In, in a way, is this a double-edged sword? They're using it because there's no, there are no authorities, there's no police, there's no military that can stop them. But at the same time, by doing that, they're exposing themselves to all the horrible conditions, human traffickers, mafias, torturing detention centers that are, are taking place in that country? I think it is quite a difficult question to answer because the reasons um, of people moving and, you know, deciding to go to Libya or not is quite much more complex than that. And migratory flow, flows itself are, are much more complex than that. So I've been working in a research institute that has done a big research project on the situation in North Africa, especially on the situation in Libya. And we've um, been, uh, for example, in Niger, and we've talked to different people who have been going to Libya and have, who have returning to Niger, etc. And for us, what we've realized at some point, and also what I've realized when talking to a lot of people on the ship itself, um, on the rescue vessels, it is that people have been coming to Libya for years and years. So if we have to, uh, or if we want to understand that situation in Libya at the moment, we have to look at it historically because we can see why at the end people are actually going to that country. And it has been the, the location for people to search for work. And it is still the location for people to search for, for work. And I think us coming from, you know, like these democratic states or whatever, and um, 
looking at a state system and work uh, opportunities and how to apply for work, etc. For us, it's really hard to imagine the way how, you know, uh, recruitment, for example, works in Libya. And it's very different. I mean, the state, of course, the government is failed and, and state organizations are, are failed, etc. But that doesn't mean that there's not construction work. That doesn't mean that there is not agriculture, etc. And people are still coming to that place to work. And it's not that people are, you know, I'm not saying that it's not nobody, but it's not a lot of people going to Libya with the idea to go to Europe further. And um, of course, there's people who have that idea to, you know, go to Libya and then take the boat to, to Europe, etc. But most of them are um, at, at some point being, being taken away, put into these detention centers, official ones or unofficial ones. And then in that kind of state, they get exploited, they get tortured, they get raped, they get taken all the money from, etc. And then the moment to decide what to do comes. And then you have to think about, do you want to take the journey back to through the Sahara where all of your friends or some of your friends have probably already died, where you've been in a country like Niger, where, you know, it, it is the country on the last place of the human development index. I mean, this is a European index in a mm -hmm. Western central or westernized index but still you can imagine the opportunities you have in that country so you choose the route uh, up north and think that maybe you you know take your chance to go to europe so i think it's much more complex than that and this is something we could probably talk about hours and hours so in a way like it feels like every step of the way feels like it's better than the previous one for for them you know like they yeah. know they're, they're aware of the risk that they're exposing themselves to but they're escaping from such horrible conditions and, and stories and that they think that they got nothing you know nothing to lose in a sense i, I think a lot of times um what i've uh, witnessed uh, is that a lot of people enter libya as simple migrant workers mm -hmm. uh, guest workers you know they they come searching for work and they want to go back to their country so as circular migrants maybe even at the end they enter in these you know in this kind of circle of abuse and they become a refugee in that situation. And that also goes back to the question of funding the, the Libyan Coast Guard, because at the end, the country of Libya and the, ex, you know, the, the circle of abuse there is making people into refugees or is forcing them to flee. And then putting money into a system that pushes back the people to where they're fleeing from. So related to this, you know, uh, what do you have to say or what does see what you have to say to the accusations normally coming from the extreme right of your organization and others such as Open Arms is, you know, of helping mafias carry people illegally into Europe? Because this is there's a lot of talk about this. And then I would like you, if possible, to address it. Yeah, um, I mean, this is a question I, I hear literally every time. And I think it's interesting how they are even daring to pose that question. Because at the end, you know, they are trying to distract from everything that is happening in the central Mediterranean by finding somebody to hold accountable for something apparently that has been going on in the central Mediterranean. You're distracting from, from, from the fact that your racist policy, policies and politics are actually um, making people die, it seems. However... Besides that, I mean, as we have been hearing this argument a lot, there are so many different ways to disprove that argument. There has been studies, um, I don't, I can't even tell you how many. Just a couple of weeks ago, there has been a study for the uh, IOM Global Migration Data Analysis Center, which is not a small 
thing, right? I mean, yeah, this is quite a big institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is quite a big institution, and this is something that has been funded also by the EU, and the EU is proud of the center. Yeah. And there has been a study that has been done um, for them that again, again, I mean, after years and years and years, again says that the so-called pull factor or pull effect or whatever does not exist. Um, if we look at times where, and this is the study is looking at that as well, if we look at times where, you know, civil rescue ships were not operative, for example, in 2018 for a month because they were detained in Malta, 2019 for a month because of Carola Rakete's rescue operation, and then 2020, because of COVID-19, we witnessed that there have been plenty of boats leaving. And they can in no way be in connection with uh, the presence of civil search and rescue ships at sea. And I mean, even, I mean, this is for me so obvious. And I find it funny that they come, you know, across the corner with the same argument, which is, yeah, making no sense. If they would look at science, uh, you know, uh, science, if they would look at uh, uh, migration researchers, if they would also listen to migration researchers who have been arguing for a much broader understanding of migration flows rather than push and pull, then we would be somewhere else. Um, but I mean, my, my migration researchers have been arguing for that for a long time, that it is so much more complex than the simple dichotomy of, you know, people having no agency being pulled and pushed and blah it is more complex obviously and, and it, it almost feels like when i hear some of their arguments like uh mentioning the fact that in a way by rescuing at sea you're there's some kind of uh call for them to actually come to europe you know there i mean i've heard all kinds of lucrative arguments saying oh you know by by having these organizations actually rescue them at sea they're pulling in all these people they're they're in a way saying hey you can come to europe it, it, it's sometimes, you know, almost ridiculous what, what they what they push for, you know? And it's, yeah. they're, they're almost trying to find a scapegoat for their own racist, as you said, policies and their own, you know, kind of strategies of actually blaming other people for their own shortcomings. Absolutely. Are organizations such as the UNHCR or the IOM helpful for your everyday operations? I mean, they're very well-known organizations. Uh, they're doing worldwide kind of uh, a worldwide job in dealing with this. They're the biggest global institutions in that sense. What is what is your relationship in, in, on a daily basis with, with these organizations? Yeah, that's a bit of a difficult question because it's quite a quite hard to answer. I mean, at the end, we do work uh, with the UNHCR together. I mean, we do have basically different contacts with them. Um, and we try to maintain a yeah, usable relationship with them. Um, but for us, it's quite difficult because they are feeding into a sort of system that is uh, building on, you know, pushing responsibilities away from Europe. I mean, the ETM, for example, that we've talked about uh, a bit is mainly operated through the UNHCR and it is presented as this durable solution system by the UNHCR and in this, you know, EU rhetoric, it's just being part of, of you know, pushing, pushing responsibilities away. And they are being used also in, 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 a, in, yeah, in a specific way to implement these kind of different, uh, you know, repressive policies. And for me, my biggest problem with the IOM and the UNHCR is they are the image of this, this dichotomy between migrants and refugees. Having the UNHCR being responsible for refugees, the IOM being responsible for migrants, is making or is you know dividing these people into these different groups, and you know um, saying that refugees have different rights and migrants have different rights, etc. It's 
and it's just dividing the world into two weird classes of protection. So you have the, you know, the first class of protection, which is refugees and the UNHCR, which, uh, you know, have these and these and these rights. And you have migrants and they're coming because of economy and they need to be repelled and blah, blah, blah. Um, for me... It's like labeling, no? Labeling yeah. different groups, right? Yeah, and the, the IOM and the UNHCR, because of their mandates, they're a big part of the, the instrument of, of these label, labels and these um, categorizations that in my understanding of migration, my understanding of, of, of migrate, migratory flows and you know, migratory decisions, et cetera, and reasons to migrate, it is much more complex than just having these two opposite things which the, these organizations also feed into. Yeah, because in the end, it almost feels like you know, there's a very clear uh, definition according to the United Nations and of what a refugee is, right? But it's always, it always comes back to the failure of the states to provide the proper means for their people to actually live a, a, a life, right? So in a sense, when people actually escape from countries that might not be war-ridden or where they might yeah. not be persecuted, but where they actually have absolutely no access to some of the most basic needs for human life, I mean, that's a very, very thin line between actually qualifying one or the other. And being able to make these labels is quite unfair for some of these people who have to escape from these conditions, right? Yeah. Okay, and my last question is a little bit generic. Uh, I mean, it might be a little bit difficult to answer. In your opinion, what is the long-term solution to the refugee crisis? I mean, what kind of global measures should be implemented? I, my, I mean, I, when I look at these problems, we're talking about the problems in the Mediterranean, but we're obviously talking about a global crisis that that is going to be ever increasing because we're seeing more and more refugees due to climate change i mean wars and conflicts are not ending there's a more polarization going on around even in the in the western in the western demo, democracy or democratic uh, countries what could we do as as a planet i mean what should we implement if, if you have any idea or an opinion on, on this matter I mean, I can't really talk about the, the, the huge, I mean, the, the global context. I can only talk about really the specific context that we are working in, which is the Central Mediterranean Sea and basically the outer borders of the Southern European countries. And for that, we do have different solutions and we do demand for, for different things. And I mean, our, our main demand, and I think this is something that we need to think about um, from a very different angle, is to provide legal escape routes. By providing legal escape routes, you know, the problem of deadly, deadly routes such as the Central Mediterranean Sea, such as the Sahara, such as, such as, such as, yeah. is being erased, this problem. And by providing, you know, legal escape routes, we can finally talk about solidarity again. We can finally talk about humanity again. Um, and we don't have to basically force people into, into situations where they have to risk their lives, which we are doing actively through the the European migration politics. And we are forcing people to choose a route where they have a very slight chance to risk and lose their lives. And this is something that needs to be stopped, uh, period. And I think that, you know, legal escape routes is something that the, the, the mostly also the German government, but also the European member states, they are always announcing them as like, yeah, well, well we have, you know, I don't know the English term, but we have, you know, when the family comes together. So when you have the father and they... Family reunification, yeah, yeah. Yeah, family reunification. Um, you know, we have this, we have that, we have blah, we have blah. 
Um, but this is not what we're talking about. I mean, of course, family reunification is something that we need and we need to have it quicker and better, etc. But for example, what are we going to do with all the people that are going to flee due to climate, the climate crisis? Yeah. Are we going to let them walk through the Sahara, which is going to come bigger because there is going to be a, a sort of desertification and the Sahara is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So how are people going to leave? Are they going to be forced through the Sahara, which is going to, you know, become uh, bigger, etc.? And how, how are we not talking about climate asylum? How are we not talking about climate passes? How are we not talk on, talking about um, uh, uh, different passports for people, what, different access to yeah, countries? What, what sense of, does family reunification have if people are not able to survive the paths? I mean, I, if you don't create... So, so let me ask you this, Matea. If, when you talk about, uh, you know, safe, legal passages, for what would that entail? It would entail countries coming together to actually generate, you know, some kind of international pathway for these people to actually access or escape from, from or, 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 or flee or migrate to, to safer areas? I mean, it would first of all need, of course, a, a, a coming together of countries in solidarity with one another and in solidarity with um, states that are currently in a state of crisis. So if we look at the Syrian uh, context, for example, this would mean that we would have sent airplanes instead of, you know, having people walk. This would mean that we would have taken the people out of there as quickly as possible by providing them the option. I mean, it doesn't mean that you have to go and evacuate people. It means that you give the people the mandate, the agency to choose the way they want to live. Do they want to take the airplane, for example, to go to Germany, be supported there? Or do they want to stay and move to Lebanon, for example, because they prefer to stay in a cultural context that is more similar to what they're, they're used to um, live in? And it is about options, giving people options, giving people the mandate to, to yeah, decide on what they want to do and not to force people into different situations where they cannot really, um, you know, where we cannot really talk about agency or, or decision making or anything like that. Would it also have to do with creating binding laws? I know we've talked about this before. Uh, basically, it feels like there are, you talk about maritime laws and how European laws and, and state laws are overriding something that's supposed to be a general international law, right? Uh, we talk about laws that are not being put into place. Would it have to come together, countries would have to come together and actually pass a, a real kind of enforcing uh, a political or policy uh, kind of like mark right i mean if you ask the activist in me and not the policy researcher then i would say uh, get rid of boundaries get rid of borders get rid of passports and then you don't have all these problems i mean at the end i have the freedom to simply go wherever the hell i want to go um i mean of course if i want to go to the u.s which i don't um then i would need to apply for a specific visa um, and all these different things but if i want to go to uh to i mean i just went to niger for example i can just go there i can take a plane mm, it might be quite expensive you know i go there i stay there as long as i want and then i i go back this is for us something that is so familiar that is so logical that is so natural and that is no discussion at all we're not even i mean we have freedom of movement right yeah. i mean with my passport, with my German passport, I have a freedom of movement where I can go wherever I want. I maybe have to sign up for some papers, maybe I have to pay some money here and some money there, but I can go except North Korea or some other states, I can go wherever I want. Why is that for us? And not for them. So, Just out of the yeah. sheer randomness of being born in one place and not the other. 
yeah, but why is that for us so natural? Why don't we question that? And why, if I say, if I demand freedom of movement for uh, an, uh, uh, a person from Nigeria or from Cote d'Ivoire, why is that suddenly radical? Why is that suddenly, uh, you know, uh, uh, part of a, you know, anti-fascist movement and, you know, trying a, a terrorist network, you know, blah, blah, blah. Why is that radical? I mean, think about it. it. It's not radical. It's something we're familiar with. And so you're pointing out to the unfairness that, uh, you know, the, the, the real kind of the whole system has of actually treating with people depending on, you know, where they were born. And, and actually the, the fact that we can't rationally explain why we were born in one place or another. So, so in a sense, it's, it's actually looking for, for a fair and reasonable approach for everybody, equal approach for everybody to these kind of, you know, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay, Matea, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the OWP podcast. Well, very welcome. Thank you for having me.